If you have your Bible, I invite you to join me in the book of John, in the New Testament, this great gospel. And we find ourselves in the 10th chapter, and we'll be looking at verses 22 through 29 this morning. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 22. I'm going to walk us through this passage of Scripture step by step. There are certain movements that are apparent here to me at least, and perhaps will be to you. will be some help for you to understand the background and the interaction that Jesus has with a group of people with whom we have become very familiar in our study of the book of John. They're simply called the Jews. Let me remind those of you who have been here, or those of you who have studied the book of John with some intensity over the course of your life, that the Jews is not a reference to all the people who inhabited Israel who were descendants of Abraham. The Jews is a term which the gospel writer chooses to describe the elitists within religious and political life in Israel. They were comprised of what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men who were some from the sect of the Sadducees, who were the liberals theologically of the day. They were of the priestly line mainly. The chief priests and all those who served in such capacities were from the Sadducees, and they occupied places on the Sanhedrin. And then the Pharisees, who were laymen. There were only 6,000 of them in the day of Jesus, a population of approximately 2 million people in Israel at that time. Very small percentage but they wielded more influence, way more than you would expect from such a handful of people, these laymen. They were the conservatives theologically of the day. So we're going to look at this text of Scripture as Jesus interacts with this group known as the Jews. Verse 22 of the text reads as follows. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The time was two months after the Feast of Tabernacles. Beginning in the seventh chapter in the second verse of the Gospel of John until the verse right before verse 22 in chapter 10. All of that material covers a very brief period of time, the last Feast of Tabernacles, which Jesus participated in, in Jerusalem. Two months have elapsed. We really don't know what Jesus has done during that two-month period. We don't know. Maybe He stayed in Jerusalem. Most believe that He left for a while and He comes back for the Feast of Dedication. This is not a feast which is prescribed in the law of Moses, and for good reason. It's set in its beginning in the 2nd century B.C. At that time, the king of Syria was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a man who was very impressed by Greek culture. He himself was not a Greek, but he had become, in effect, an Hellenized individual, meaning he was inundated with the ideas of Greek culture, the ideas and also the ideals of Greek culture. And so his intention was to make all those in his kingdom and part of his kingdom extended to the 
borders of what we know as Israel. It was known as Palestine at that time. And his intent was to eradicate all influence of Judaism among the descendants of Abraham. He was futile in such an attempt. He tried to do it peacefully, indoctrinating, propagandizing with things which were taught and methods that were true of Greek culture being infused into that area. And they were resisted very strongly by the descendants of Abraham. The Jews were opposed for good reason because there was an attempt to replace the one true God with the pantheon of Greek and or Roman gods. After this failed attempt, it took about three years for him to realize this transition was not going to be effected by peaceful methods. So he became violent. He marched with his army on the citadel of Jerusalem. And so historians say 80,000 inhabitants of Israel died at that time at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes and his forces. 80,000 more became slaves. It was a terrible time. In 167 B.C., on the 25th of Chislev, that was according to the Hebrew calendar, this man Antiochus Epiphanes did the unthinkable. He went into the temple having conquered Jerusalem, carrying a pig. He took the pig to the altar where the burnt offerings prescribed in the law of Moses were sacrificed. He took a pig. Do you understand what that meant to the Jews. He took a pig and he sacrificed it on the altar. And then he replaced the burnt offering altar with an altar to Zeus, the head of the pantheon of Greek gods. He had a statue of Zeus, an idol of Zeus, placed in the holy place in the temple. The temple quarters became places of prostitution associated with the worship of Zeus. It was awful for the Jewish people to see the desecration of their holiest place. A man by the name of Mattathias had three sons, the oldest of whom was known as Judas. He came to be known as Judas Maccabeus. The word Maccabeus means the hammer. Are you beginning to get the picture about Judas? He was the hammer. And he was one who began to organize guerrilla warfare in Israel against the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes. It was a daunting task. It was a bold move on his part. But the people rallied around him. He was a charismatic leader and a fierce fighter. And within three years, three years to the day, three years on the 25th of Chislev, he marched into that same temple which had been desecrated for all those years and he ordered the cleansing of the temple. It was a day of great celebration. It was the beginning of the feast of dedication of the altar again, the burnt offering altar in the holy place. We know it today as Hanukkah. Perhaps you have Jewish friends who celebrate Hanukkah. We know there is a close tie 
as far as timing is concerned before our celebration of the birth of Christ and the celebration of Hanukkah. It's also known as the Festival of Lights, and it was in those days too. It was declared by Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C., and it has continued all those centuries, 22 centuries it has continued, that annually at a particular time for eight days this festival will be celebrated. I wish we had time to go to the apocryphal books of 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees and listen to the description which is given by the writer of the incredible celebration which broke out in this day and time. Let me read a quote from Josephus, the great Jewish historian of Jesus' day, regarding the Feast of Lights. Listen to what he wrote in his Antiquities, book 12. The Feast of Lights became the right to worship And it appeared to us at a time when we hardly dared to hope for it. He was not there. His ancestors were there. They had lost all hope, and hope was restored. And where there was darkness, there was light. Now fast forward almost 200 years. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and that was the season that this feast occurred. It would be equivalent today to sometime either in late November or early to mid-December. And it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. This morning, among those things which we sung in worship of the Lord, was a statement about Jesus being the light of the world. He was the light of the world. He is the light of the world. He always will be the light of the world. The Scripture says in John chapter 1, In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it, depending upon how you would want to translate that word. And it can be translated either way. And then a little later in the introduction of the Gospel of John, this is what we hear John writing about Jesus. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. And the world was made through Jesus, the light of the world. And the world did not receive Him. And so we see, as Jesus is walking in the temple, He's encountering these Jews whom we have discussed already today. They actually interrogate Jesus. They attempt to intimidate Jesus. But their effort in both areas fell far short. Look at what the text says in verse 24. The Jews therefore gathered around him. Let me stop here just a moment. That could be understood that they gathered around him like so many people would gather around him when they had the opportunity to listen to him teach. But they weren't interested in what Jesus had to say. The word translated gathered around actually means they surrounded him. They were there to interrogate him and to bully him if they could. But Jesus was not to be bullied. And look at what they say to him. They were saying to him, which suggests they were saying it more than one time. They said it more than once. Which would suggest also that Jesus was not in any hurry to answer them. He was not under their spell. He was not under their jurisdiction. He knew His authority. God the Father had sent Him to do His will. And He was listening to the Father. He was not listening to these people who were interrogating Him. Here was their question 
for Jesus. And then their suggestion, it's really more than a suggestion, it's an order they give to him. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, that is Messiah, tell us plainly. The word which is translated plainly by the New American Standard Bible from which I'm reading is a word which is used, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer talks about Jesus as our high priest. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. That's the word which is chosen by the Holy Spirit here to describe the way in which this group of Jewish intimidators were interrogating Jesus. And they were saying, tell us boldly, Jesus. They were baiting Him. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. Both the words of Jesus which he had spoken probably on more than one occasion to members of that group which had encircled him. They had surrounded him. Those words Jesus had spoken in many places, many times, with members of that group. And they had not heard what he had to say. And here's the reason. Look at verse 26. But you did not believe because you are not of my sheep. These men were not dullards. They were not dunces. They were educated men. They were scholars, believe it or not, many of them, of what we would call today the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. They were scholars. They were well-educated, but what Jesus had to say just went right over their heads because They were not his sheep. Look at verse 5 of chapter 10. Speaking of the sheep of Christ, Jesus says, And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. The voice of strangers. These people in question were themselves strangers and they listened to other strangers to try to understand the things of God rather than listen to the voice of God mediated through the person of Jesus Christ who Himself is the God-man, the God who became one of us. Go to John chapter 5 for just a moment. We're going to look at a few verses in John chapter 5 which illustrate verse 25, regarding the words and the works of Jesus, which he had done in the presence of these and so many others, but this particular group didn't get it. Verse 16 says, And for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Even a casual reader of the Gospels will be able to know that many people Jesus healed, and there were myriads of them, many people whom Jesus healed, He healed them on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees took Jesus to task. How dare He do such things on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
And he says, God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus knew that God the Father was interested in these people who were crippled, whom he encountered from time to time in synagogues where he would go to worship and to teach. And God used him to heal them. These people who were so bent out of shape because of Jesus doing works on the Sabbath, if they had just known their Bible more than intellectually, if they had really understood what Jesus was doing, they would have understood who He was. He was fulfilling prophecy. There are many places we could visit to look into statements of prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. I'm only going to mention one. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. And the Scripture says this about the Messiah. And then He will open blind eyes and He will unstop deaf ears. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the dumb tongue will shout with joy. Jesus did restore the blind. Jesus did restore hearing to people who were deaf. Jesus gave speech to people whose tongues were tied. Jesus didn't just give some speech. It resulted in shouts of joy and praise to the Lord. And then Jesus healed lamed and crippled people. Did He not? He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But they didn't get it. Look at verse... 36 of John 5. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, and the Father has sent me. So, Jesus, the Messiah, did works which should have pointed these learned leaders of Israel to His true identity. But they were not His sheep. Now let me... Stop here just a moment. I know you've picked up on this already, but just in case, I didn't explain it properly. One of the identifying marks of a person who is a Christian is that he or she hears the voice of Jesus. And by that, I mean you understand what he says. And we're going to see in a moment, it's not a casual hearing or listening. Look at John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said, in the presence of these Jews, in fact, so you'll know I'm not making that up, look at verse 57 of John 8. The Jews therefore said to him, that is to Jesus, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And look what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He was declaring His deity. And the book of John emphasizes repeatedly through statements which Jesus has said that He is the Messiah and He is God. He's not just any little God with a little G. He is God in the flesh. Therefore, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at Him. Why? They knew that Jesus had declared Himself to be God. So some of these very people were there. They heard what Jesus said, but they were reluctant, completely reluctant 
to believe who he was. Well, let me interrupt myself for just a moment with a simple statement that's very obvious to you. Belonging is one of the stronger psychological needs that we have in our lives. Isn't it true? We want to belong. We join clubs. We join teams or fan clubs. We want to go to a particular university because of the prestige that's associated and the connections we can make if we get a degree from that university so we can go out and get the right job and gain power in our culture. We join civic service organizations. The urge we have to join and belong is seen in the links to which people will go to become members of certain groups. The most strong illustration that came to my mind as I was thinking about this in preparation for this message was the illustration that comes from street gangs, the Crips, the Bloods, many others, and how in order to become a member of these gangs, those who aspire to be belonging to those groups, they submit themselves to being beaten to an inch of death just to belong. They take these brutal beatings. That's how strong the urge is to join. Now, many of you, probably none of you has really experienced that, thank God. But you have striven, perhaps, to be a part and belong in some organization or to some group that you believe will finally bring fulfillment to your life. Actually, as we go back to chapter 10, in this passage of Jesus, in this passage, Jesus speaks of the only group worth belonging to in the universe. And you, if you don't already belong to it, perhaps is the day that you will be initiated into this group. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the institutional church. I'm not even talking about a church that has a name attached to it, a Baptist name or a Catholic name or a Presbyterian name or a charismatic name or whatever. I'm not talking about names that are labels which have been given by men, not by God. I'm talking about the church of Christ, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building which is known as the temple of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the Lord of the church. That's what I'm talking about. And look at what Jesus says in verse 29. The New American Standard translates the first part as follows. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. My translation, those who edited this particular edition of the New American Standard Bible, the word them in my edition is italicized. Do you have that in your Bible? The word them is in italics. Do you know what that signifies whenever you're reading your Bible and a word is in italics? It's not for emphasis. It's for recognizing that that word does not appear in the original text. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, but I think you'll get it. I trust the Lord will help you to get it. When Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me, when He refers to the Father according to the translation of the New American Standard Version, the word who, that obviously would be a masculine relative pronoun referring back 
to the Father. My Father and the Father is masculine, so it would be who? It would be the masculine pronoun. When you look at it, it's not the masculine pronoun. It's the neuter pronoun. And what that simply means is it's talking about an entity or an organism or an organization. So this, I would suggest to you this morning, it's very important that you see this, that the right translation, the better translation would be this. What my Father has given to me is greater than all. What has the Father given to Jesus Christ? In John chapter 6, we've seen it this morning. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, certainly not, is the way the New American Standard translates it rightly, certainly not cast out. What has the Father given to Jesus? He's given His sheep to Jesus. He's given His church to Jesus. So the most significant body of people in the universe is the church of Jesus Christ. Because it is His church in whom He dwells and He wants to exercise His power, His presence, and His influence through people just like us individually and is part of a local body of believers and even on a larger scale, part of the body of Christ in El Paso, in this region, on the border, and all over the world. A group from our body is going to France. And my guess is when they arrive there, they will feel like they're home because they're with others who make up the body of Christ. They are sheep of Jesus. That's important for us to understand. So I'm going to ask two questions. What are the the prerequisites for being in the flock of Christ? And Jesus gives them. There are three we're going to look at. And then next, what are the privileges of being in the body of Christ? There are two that Jesus gives. So let's begin with considering the prerequisites. They're found in chapter 10 of John, verse 27. The first of which Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. The word hear is a present tense verb which would yield this translation. My sheep are hearing my voice. That means if I'm a sheep of Christ, I don't hear the voice of Christ just one time. I have the privilege of hearing Him all the time if I put myself in a position to hear Him. And here's the position I must maintain. I must maintain a position of submission to Him. I must not regard sin in my heart or He will not hear me and He will not speak to me because He cannot have fellowship with darkness. And when there's darkness in my heart, that fellowship is short-circuited. I don't lose my relationship with Him, as we're going to see in a moment, if I'm really there. But that is what happens. I must put myself in a position to hear His speaking to me. Christ's enemies could not hear because they were blind and they were deaf. We who know Jesus, we are His sheep, we can hear. I've been enjoying reading the Gospel of Luke recently in my daily time alone with the Lord. And I'm in the period of Jesus' life, which is describing the last week of His life. He's in Jerusalem. It's the last Passover feast that He's participating in. 
He's going to be the Passover lamb. And in the 19th chapter, the last verse, this is riveting to me. The way God speaks to me every time I think of it. I've been able to teach this three times this weekend. And it's just like electrifying in my own spirit and soul when I think about it. It says, the people were hanging on every word that Jesus said. Do you ever find yourself doing something like that? Either privately or in a public place of worship? Are you hanging on every word? Are you hungry to hear what Jesus has to say? Remember what Peter said to Jesus when everybody was abandoning Jesus. It's the story recorded of the feeding of the 5,000 in the 6th chapter of John. And everybody was leaving. And Jesus said to Peter, are you going to leave too? And he said, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. They were hanging on his words. This is reminiscent of what is stated earlier in the 10th chapter of Luke, where Jesus and his sheep were being hosted by two other sheep, Martha and Mary in the village of Bethany. And Martha's out bustling and hustling in the kitchen, serving the Lord, really ministering to Jesus, preparing a meal for him and his associates. And her younger sister, Mary, is seated at the feet of Jesus, and the writer says, listening to the words of Jesus. It looked like she was doing nothing. Nothing. Just listening. But she was doing what Jesus described as the most important thing any human being can do. Listening to Him. For good reason. Because heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will never pass away. And then, if we go back to Luke, the last week of Christ's life in Luke 21, the last verse says, Jesus, every evening, would go out to the Mount of Olives. He would sleep under the stars. And then He would get up early in the morning. He would make His way to the temple. And people were waiting there to listen to Him. To hear from Him. Perhaps you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus took His closer associates, Peter, James, and John, on a mountain, which we have come to know as the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father spoke in the presence of those three men. And He said, This is My beloved Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. If we are sheep, we will listen to Him. And not a casual kind of listening, but a listening that we pin everything on. Because He has the words of eternal life. So the first prerequisite is listening to our shepherd's voice. Here's the second thing that Jesus says in verse 27. And I know them. It's being known by our shepherd. Now we can't force the hand of Jesus to know us. Jesus talks about people who are trying to sneak into the kingdom of heaven. He talks about them in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. And not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But they will say to me, but Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, only those who do the will of my Father are going to be in heaven. The will of my Father. And he goes on to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, 
We need to be known by Jesus. Thank God. He calls us to be His sheep. We hear His voice. He wants to know us. It's amazing that Jesus would want to know us because we are His enemies in our sin. But He wants to know us. The word translated, I know them. The word know is a word which means close relationship. The closest of human relationships. That's what Jesus desires of us. It's mind-boggling to think that He would want that from us. Some of you are old enough and or interested enough to have seen the musical The Sound of Music. And you know Julie Andrews' character is the teacher of the Van Trapp or Von Trapp. I can't remember. I think it's probably Von Trapp since it's German. And she's teaching them and she sings beautifully wherever she sings. I think she's still living. She probably does still sing beautifully. And there's a song, Getting to Know You. Are you familiar with that song? And she sings it to her students, the Von Trapps. And then in the song, she says, You are the subject I like most. That's what she says. That's wild. She's their teacher. She's their superior. Do you know, you, if you're the sheep of Christ, you are the subject He likes best? How do we know that? Because of His dying on the cross for you. We know how valuable we are based upon what it cost Him to have us as His sheep. Incredible. He knows us and He wants to grow in knowledge, believe it or not. Well, He's God. Of course, He doesn't need to work at getting to know us. Yes, He is God. When He was on earth, He was fully human too. And so... He spent time getting to know His men. Mark's description of Jesus calling out of the broader group of apostles, I mean, excuse me, disciples, those whom He would give apostleship to, the Scripture says as the top priority was that they might be with Him. Jesus delights in getting to know us. And this is suggested once again in the grammar of this simple statement, I know them. It's a present tense statement. I am getting to know them is what it really means. So Jesus is getting to know us. Even now, He's very interested in us. If we were to go to Psalm 139, we would see the statement that that this Psalm makes, and David is saying to the Father, He's saying, You have known Me. And I love it because the word know is that word of intimacy. It's not the indifferent approach that a scientist might take when the scientist is looking at some kind of protoplasm under a microscope. Interested, yes, but not intimately interested. Jesus is intimately interested in getting to know you and me. He knows when we lie down. He knows when we get up. He knows when we go off somewhere. Jesus knows us. He is caring very much for us. Here's the third prerequisite. What are the first two? Listening to the shepherd's voice. The second is being known by the shepherd. Here's the third one. They follow me. A willingness to follow the leader. And here again, I know I'm in the weeds for some of you, but they keep on following Him. It's a lifestyle of following Jesus. All of these three things, a willingness to follow, being known by the Father and Jesus the shepherd, and listening to Jesus, our great shepherd. 
All of these things really sum up what faith is. Here's a definition I heard probably 35, maybe even 40 years ago. It stuck with me. It's an acronym for faith. If you'll think of the five letters, F-A-I-T-H, and fill in this acronym with these words, forsaking all, I trust Him. That's real faith. Forsaking all. Abandoning your own right to rule your life. Saying no to yourself in order that you may say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, your good shepherd, believing in Him. Jesus, in effect, gives us as the body of Christ. Have you ever thought of that term that Paul chooses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe the church, the body of Christ? Jesus had a body when He walked on earth. Does Jesus have a body on earth now? What is it? It's the church of Jesus Christ. So we should be like Christ in the way in which we conduct ourselves. We are to listen well. Did Jesus listen to the Father? He did, didn't He? Do you know how He introduces several sayings in the Gospel of John? Truly, truly. We've seen this before, but it's worth repeating. The words are Amen, Amen. Or Amen, Amen, if you're from the South. Amen, Amen. And when do we typically use the word Amen? To signal the end of a prayer. That's a rather poor way of using it. But sometimes if you hear something and it really resonates in your heart, you say Amen. And what you're saying is confirmed, confirmed in my spirit. When Jesus says truly, truly, when He's talking to His followers, His sheep, obviously He's been in conversation with the Father. The Father has spoken to Jesus, and Jesus, in turn, is telling His sheep what He's heard, and we hear the voice of God when Jesus speaks. It's awesome to think about. We're to listen well. This will make all the difference in this church's life if we will become Good listeners. Not just to Jesus. That's paramount. But to one another. When I encounter you, if you're a sheep of Christ, my assumption, and it's more than an assumption, it's the truth, Jesus Christ is in you. And I am meeting Jesus in you when I meet you. So I would treat you, if I'm wise, with the same respect I would treat the Lord Jesus Christ if He were interchanging with me, interfacing with me. That's the good news. And so, remember, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need that it may benefit those who listen. If I listen the way I'm supposed to listen to you, I'm going to detect, if I listen long enough, I'm going to detect what your needs are. And the Lord's going to direct me how to minister to you. And that's not just because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a sheep of Christ. I'm one of millions and hundreds of millions across the globe. And this body of believers, if this many in this room would take this to heart and begin to listen to the Lord, then listen to each other. Can you imagine what would happen in this church and in this city, in the world? We're to listen well and we will get to know each other well, won't we? We'll know each other. 
We'll grow in relationship with each other. We'll grow in community with each other. And then conversational partners become friends. That's where friendship is. Learning to listen as if we're listening to the Lord when we interact with a brother and sister in Christ, remembering what Jesus said, when you've done it under one of the least of these brothers of mine, my sheep, you've done it to me. Look, this revolutionizes your life if you begin to see others in Christ who are such people. And it's the right way to look. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. Isn't it amazing that Jesus would call us friends? We walk in companionship with one another if we walk in companionship with Christ. Let's get to the privileges. Decades ago, I found out yesterday to my dismay when I began to do a little research, American Express had a motto, membership has its privileges. I'd say... That's putting it mildly in the body of Christ. Because look at the two things that are our privileges. Verse 28. I give eternal life to them. Jesus gives it to us. It cannot be earned or deserved. You can lay down all your efforts of trying to make yourself right with God. It's not about your becoming a better person. You are dead spiritually. You need to become a New person, not just a better person, totally new, according to what the Bible says. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life forever. And look at the last thing he says about the privileges. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. I'm particularly fond of this privilege. Let me look at it with you slowly. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. They shall never perish. The phrase, they shall never perish, means they will not never, is literally what it says. Two negatives together to emphasize the total impossibility of our ever losing eternal life and we will never be snatched out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the place of ultimate safety. Now listen carefully. Our continuance in eternal life does not depend on our feeble hold on Jesus, but it depends on His firm grip on us. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I know I'm repeating myself from earlier, but it could be repeated a hundred times. That's all we heard. It'd be great. Because it speaks of His fulfilling the will of the Father. We're kept in our salvation by the power of none other than Jesus Christ, the God-man. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate you and me from Jesus because we're in the hand of God. In Colossians 3.3, Paul puts it this way, that we are hidden with Christ in God. Which leads us to look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The word snatch is different 
in its grammar than the word snatch, which Jesus uses. Same vocabulary word, but a different tense of verb. Here, it's the idea of there's continual effort to snatch me from the hand of Jesus and the hand of God the Father. But all those efforts are futile. We sang in Christ alone. No power of hell. No scheme of man. And there were lots of schemers. These Jews were schemers. This elitist group. And Jesus has described them as wolves. He's described them as thieves and robbers. They're the false teachers. The people who would be antichrist in a sense against Jesus, trying to get us out of the clutches of Christ, which is the place of ultimate safety. But it's impossible because Christ is omnipotent, all-powerful. God the Father, obviously, is also omnipotent. This preservation of the sheep, that's what I would call it, the preservation. It's not the perseverance of the saints. It's not our perseverance. It's Christ preserving us in His hand, the Father. This preservation of us as sheep is not independent of God the Father. Who can steal from God the Father? Who is strong enough or sneaky enough to overpower or outwit God? Nobody. The devil thinks he can, but even he is impotent before God. Praise the Lord that greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. Is this omnipotent, in this omnipotent hand, whom shall we fear? Let me allude to three verses in the Old Testament which speak of our place in the hand of Jesus and God the Father. The first is from the 37th Psalm, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and the Lord delights in his way. We are sheep of Christ. He delights in our way. He delights in our lives. He's our Father. He's our brother. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. Though he fall, that's the steps of this good man, though this good man fall, he will not be utterly cast down. Why? Because the Lord upholds him with his hand. Do you get the picture? A toddler being upheld by a parent or a grandparent or an older sibling holding the hand, and you've seen little toddlers when they're in the infancy of walking, they're apt to just fall flat on their faces. But as long as they're holding the parent's hand, what can they be sure of? The parent's not going to let them go. That is good news. Have you failed the Lord as a sheep? If you have, what we know is He's come after you. He's left all those who are behaving, and He's come after you. And He's bringing you back to where you belong in the fold. That's His way. He brings us back. And the next thing I would refer to from the Old Testament is found in Isaiah 41. I really like this. It says, Do not fear, God says, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Every effort that the devil mounts against you as a sheep of Christ, the Lord is upholding you. You're in Christ. There's therefore, whoa, dude. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're good, right? He's upholding us with His hand. 
And here's the last one. In Psalm 1611, the Bible says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. People who think they're having fun in this world, who don't know Jesus, who aren't sheep of Christ, they are being sorely deceived. Escapism is what they're resorting to. Instead of fleeing from the world to Christ and finding in Jesus all they need. It is a place of safety, ultimate safety, and sovereignty too. God is going to take you to the end. I love what the Bible teaches about the security we have as the Lord preserves us. But perhaps my favorite is found in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 6, where the Bible says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What God starts, he finishes. He's going to carry it on to completion. Well, there are prerequisites. It does cost. And the cost of admission in the church of Christ is very high. It costs Jesus' life. And it costs us being willing to yield ourselves, not just partially, but completely. Sensing the need and the desire to know the Lord. Hearing the voice of Jesus speaking to us in our hearts, drawing us to Himself. And the privileges are priceless, aren't they? Eternal life. And no one being able to touch us without the permission of our sovereign God. Would you bow your head and pray? If you've never received Christ, today could be the day for you. We invite you to respond to the voice of Jesus. Just say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I need you. I'm tired of living under bondage of sin and my own selfishness, and even Satan. I want to give you control of my life. Lord, please take me. I want to be your sheep. Thank you for making it possible by dying for me, laying down your life on the cross and being raised from the dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.